going to make one for you unless you ask for it, but she'll be happy to make one if you ask. Um, Jessica has an announcement for Women's Fellowship. Yes, so tomorrow night we're going to have a, a Valentine's Day meal. I'm going to be the hostess for that. Um, and then Jessica Black is going to do a, a little program. Um, so if you don't normally come, we'd love for you to come. It's at 7 o'clock. We're gonna, we have a little meal. And then some talking, we'll, you know, if they have fellowship. And then we have a, a meeting. We're going to discuss our April dinner. Um, we've moved, the, our normal dinner was in March, but last year we, we it kind of worked better in April. So we're going to do it in April again this year. We're going to try to hammer down those, the details for that so we can start announcing all that stuff come the next few weeks. Um, and then we'll do our program. So if you don't really come, please come. We'd love to have you. And the normal people who do come, please come too. Um, and we'll see you tomorrow. Thanks. Uh, any other announcements that I'm missing? All right. Well, uh, while I'm thinking about it, next Sunday, so many of you may may remember uh, in January, what, January had five Sundays, and I'm normally away on the fifth Sundays. Uh, and I had class in January. So this, January 16th, Michael Black had planned and prepared to preach for us that Sunday, which was canceled due to the lovely snow and ice that we had. Uh, and so next Sunday on February 13th, Michael is going to be preaching uh, to you and he'll be preaching to you out of Psalm 96 uh, and leading us in, in a, a psalm of worship. Uh, so be here next Sunday. It'll be uh, a well, well worth your time, I'm sure, as Michael leads us in worship that Sunday. Uh, if there's no other announcements, uh, let me read to you then as we begin our worship service from the Psalms. Psalm 145 is a, a song of praise written by David, and this is what it says. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. You know, one of the joys of of being together in church and worshiping together, especially at a church like this, where we have ages from just about every generation present this morning. The, the psalmist says here that one generation shall commend your works to another. And so, yes, we gather as one people to worship the Lord and to praise the Lord and to celebrate his goodness. But being a, a multi-generational church gives us an opportunity for our older generations to proclaim to our younger generations of the goodness and the greatness of the Lord that they have seen. So let me encourage you this morning, uh, as, as we worship, as we uh, gather together, as, we, as you leave here this morning, find someone from a different generation and tell them of the goodness of the Lord. Uh, let me pray for us as we begin our, our worship this morning. Father, you are good. And you are great, and your greatness is unsearchable, as David reminds us. Help us this morning to worship you. Help us to gather in truth, to gather in spirit, and to, to come together as your people to sing to you 
to hear from you and to worship you. Father, may your name be glorified among your people this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our first hymn this morning is hymn 111, When Morning Gilds the Skies. If you will, take your hymnals, stand and sing with us. Please be seated. Uh, at this time, if our children will come forward for our children's story. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Are you missing the snow yet? Do you wish we had more snow this morning? No. That's that's. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you if you've ever let me give you an expression see if you've ever heard it sticks and stones may break my bones but words may never hurt me you ever heard that before no, no. Yes, yes, yes. yes yes i have okay from a, from a book what do you think that means uh, what well, says sticks and stones may break our bones but words may never hurt me what does that mean? I don't know. Ask the grown-ups. Ask the grown-ups. <laughs> All right, grown-ups. <laughs> Anybody, any, any of our grown-ups want to take a shot? What, is, what does that expression mean? What, what's that? I... Come, come on, grown-ups. Audience participation. 
All right, grown-ups, how many of you have, have either heard, used, or said that expression to, to someone before? Show of hands? All right. So, so the, the phrase is really given to us. A lot of times is when someone says something mean to us. Someone might say that expression to us, saying that sticks and stones may break our bones. Right? If someone hits you with a really big stick, it'll hurt. Yeah. Someone throws you a really big rock at you, it'll hurt. But the expression says words may never hurt us. Not like sticks and stones. Is that true? Uh-uh. What, why is what, do do words hurt? Yes, yes. Because and the tongue hurts. The tongue hurts the most. Um, and so one of the things that we're going to be talking about this morning in Deuteronomy is how dangerous and painful words can be, because how we speak to someone else can actually change their lives, and so we need to be extra careful. And how we speak to others and how we speak about others and how we use our words. Because words mean a lot and words have the power of life and death sometimes. Yeah, seriously. God chose to give us the gospel and we are called to, to, to speak the gospel. Not, not live the gospel so much, but, but speak the gospel. And so with our words and with the words of Christ, lives are changed. That's a good question. The gospel means that we are sinners and that we deserve death. Oh, yeah. But that Jesus, the Son of God, died for us in our place. I remember in one of my questions. Yep. And three days later, he rose again from the dead. And if we believe in him, then we have eternal life. Our sins are forgiven and we can be with Christ forever. Let me pray for you. And let me encourage you to use your words well this week and be kind in how you speak to others. Even your brothers and sisters and your friends and your parents and your teachers speak kindly. Let me pray. God, thank you for these these children that you have blessed us with. Thank you for uh, just bringing them into your house and around your people and, and here to worship you. I pray that as they grow, they would grow in stature and maturity. That they would grow in Christ likeness and that they would come to, to know you and love you. As you draw them to yourself. Be with us this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, in the in your bulletin, you'll find a copy of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, just like we we teach our children these truths, it is important for us to be remembered to be reminded of them as well. And so, I invite you this morning, since you're seated, to remain seated and to recite the Apostles' Creed aloud with me. And then, following that, I'll invite you to stand and sing the doxology together. So, say the Apostles' Creed aloud with me this morning. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.
you'll remain standing and sing our next hymn together. It's hymn 109, Oh How I Love Jesus. Our choir is going to sing our anthem now.
If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy. We are continuing through our, our study this morning through the book of Deuteronomy. We've been in it for, for a while. Um, and just kind of as you're, as you're turning there, if you don't have a Bible, there's, I'm sure there's a, a blue Bible on your pew. Feel free to grab one of those so that you can see and hear God's word as you read it with me. Um, but just as a, as a plan in the, in the weeks and, and months coming ahead, uh, I mentioned already that Michael will be preaching for us next Sunday. Uh, the last two Sundays of February, we will be back in Deuteronomy. And then the first Sunday of March is actually the first Sunday of Lent. And for the eight Sundays of Lent we will, leading up to Easter, uh, we will be taking a break from Deuteronomy and looking at eight encounters with Jesus in the gospel accounts and looking at how different individuals such as the, the woman at the well and Nicodemus and others who, who met Jesus and interacted with Jesus and how those encounters uh, came about and went. And so we'll be doing a, an eight week mini series on those encounters with Jesus. And with that said, these, this is a great time to invite somebody to church and bring somebody with you uh, to church. Uh, I, I don't mean inviting someone who has a, a church elsewhere and bringing them here for eight weeks, but I mean finding someone who doesn't have a church home that they, they go to regularly, someone who, who hasn't been here in a while. But finding someone and bringing them here for, for the time leading up to Easter is actually a great time for, for us as a church to, to bring people in and to invite, invite those that, that maybe have missing for a while. So that's the plan going forward. Uh, so this morning we are in Deuteronomy 19 and finishing, finishing the chapter, looking at verses 15 through 21. This is what the law of God says. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Pray with me. Fathers, we come to your word this morning. We come seeking help. We come seeking help in understanding. We come seeking help in applying. We come seeking help in believing. Uh, none of these things can we do on our own. We are not capable of understanding your word rightly. We are not capable of applying your word rightly. We are not capable of even believing your word. Not without you. Not without your spirit dwelling within us. So spirit come. Descend upon your people this morning and help us 
in this. Speak through me this morning, Father, that that your word may go forth and bear fruit and not return void. We come seeking you. It's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. I know that I just read to you from, from Deuteronomy 19, but I want to do something a little bit differently this morning as we begin. I want to read to you another passage of Scripture that I think applies and, and ties in. It's from the New Testament, from the book of James. And this is what James says. It says, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Those ships are are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also, the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. Full of deadly poison. These are are heavy words to be sure, but can anyone here deny their truth? I mean, can, can anyone here deny the truth that the tongue, though such a small and seemingly insignificant body part, can actually set the entire course of life on fire, as James says? And as we've been studying here the, these last few weeks in Deuteronomy, uh, we've, we've been focusing on the, the elaboration of the Sixth Commandment. The, thou shall not kill. Thou shall not murder. And this morning, I, I want to present to you from Deuteronomy 19, I want to lay before you a weapon that has been wielded more than any other in all of human history. It is picked up by children and adults alike, by both civilians and soldiers. This, this weapon is the weapon that James refers to. It is a reckless evil, a weapon full of deadly poison. This weapon, of course, is our tongue. You see, in our, in our passage, what I just read to you from Deuteronomy 19, we are confronted with a law regarding the tongue and how it can be used to destroy life. How it can be used, in fact, to murder but I want, what, I, what I want to lay upon you this morning, church, from, from hearing God's word, is the importance of our speech. That what you say matters. And that in your words, you carry the possibility of both life and death. And these two options are put before you. Will you use your tongue as a weapon of death or will you, as as Christ's disciples living in him, will you in fact speak life? 
And if you desire to speak life, as I, I hope and pray that all of us do, if we desire to speak life, I believe that there are three steps that we must take in order to accomplish this goal. That we must speak In order to speak life, we must speak truth, we must speak love, and we must speak mercy. Let me walk you through these three from from God's Word here in Deuteronomy 19. First, we must speak truth. Speak truth. We see this in in verse 15. Let me me ask you as a a way of, of illustration, what... What is the most important evidence in a criminal trial? You, you might think uh, DNA. You might, you might think maybe murder weapon. You might think motive. Who had the, the most justification for wanting this crime to happen? But really, the, the true answer, I, I believe I heard, was, was testimony. Eyewitness testimony far outweighs and is the most important evidence in a a criminal trial, and it has been for thousands of years. It's so important that if a criminal case has two or more eyewitnesses whose testimony matches one another, it takes mountains and mountains of physical evidence that speak contrary to those testimonies to overcome them. And while eyewitness testimony is one of the most important or is the most important evidence in a criminal trial, the greatest problem with eyewitness testimony is reliability. Can we fully trust an eyewitness account to be 100% accurate every single time? I mean, think of all the things that can impact a testimony. Things like trauma. Being an eyewitness to a a horrendous act can be an act of trauma against you. And so much so that trauma can actually distort how things actually happen. You can remember things differently. And so your testimony, though you actually saw the event take place, your testimony can be twisted by the fact that you were traumatized by what you saw. Time impacts eyewitness accounts. I mean, how many of us can remember events that happened yesterday or last week or maybe even months ago? And yet eyewitness testimony is often asked to remember things from months and months and even years ago. And there's also emotional recall and things that, that we feel happen, things that we perceive. I mean, all of these are, are factors that can unintentionally even skew the facts of the testimony of what actually happened. And these are all just unintentional. What about intentional? Things like manipulation and greed and wicked wicked intent, lies. Where an eyewitness testimony is is the most important piece of evidence, someone with a, a wicked desire can take that most important evidence and twist it to accomplish their own evil ends. See, because of all of these things, this is why this law given to us in verse 15 This is why it exists. A single witness shall not suffice for any crime or for any wrong. One eyewitness is not enough to convict. Robert Evans famously said, there are three sides to every story. Your side, my side, and the truth. And and I I think that 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 statement has often been taken, especially today, as a a twist on postmodernism, but I... 
I'm not a postmodern supporter, but I do think that there is an element of truth in what Robert Evans said. Because you see, we as people, the way that God has wired our minds, the way that God has wired our, our, our eyes and our thoughts, we are not simply simple receivers. When things happen to us, when we see things, when we go to recall them or, or retell what we saw, it is not a, a, we are not computers that just spit out facts and numbers and digits. We are not just receivers, we are interpreters. We receive information, our minds process them and interpret them, and then we recall them as our interpretation has received them. Let me give you an example. Think of your typical traditional wedding day. You've really got two important parties in this on this day. You've got the bride and the groom. And though the same event happens, they get married, the, the same thing takes place, the two people remember those days very, very differently, more often than not. The bride remembers waking up that morning and spending time with her, her bridesmaids, getting breakfast and, and getting dressed and getting their hair and makeup done. And, and all of these things leading up to the big day, there's excitement and anticipation. She remembers the tears that were shed when her father saw her in her dress for the first time. She remembers those doors opening and seeing her groom waiting down the aisle, strong and determined. She's excited for the life ahead. Now the groom wakes up that morning and is trying to remember from the night before where he's supposed to be and when and where his groomsmen have disappeared to and how to get them to where they're supposed to be. He's, he, his is a day full of nervousness, anxiety, making sure that he, he does everything as he was told. His tuxedo is a confusing mess. His day is spent making sure his groomsmen get dressed and are where they're supposed to be for pictures. And when those doors open and he's standing there at the altar, his knees are shaking. He's a nervous mess. But there his bride comes and he, he sees his bride for the first time. His knees are about to buckle and he's, though excited for the life of head, he is shaking from head to toe. Same event. Two very different memories. But this is why a single witness can't suffice in a criminal trial. Because a single witness provides only a two-dimensional or one-sided picture. But when you have two or more eyewitnesses, they provide depth to this event. They provide a fuller three-dimensional picture of what actually happened. Now, in reality, we, I think we need to ask the question as we read Scripture, but especially God's law, we, we come to these verses and these passages and the question confronts us, why does this matter? Why, unless you work in the judicial system, unless you're a lawyer or a judge or a juror, why does this law matter for us today? Does a passage like this matter for your life? And, of course, I think it does. I don't think that should be a surprise to any of you. This passage, God's word, in every verse matters for your life today. But let me give you two, two ways specifically that this verse 15 matters for you. I think, first, that if we are to speak life, and, and to speak life we must speak truth, then we need to be very careful, and we need to verify what we say before we say it. 
We live in, in this age of information, and more often than not, it is an age of over-information. You are bombarded with facts and figures and images every day. You have more information at your disposal than the last thousand years ever had. And it is not an easy task for us, for us to, to sift through all of the stuff being thrown at us. But we are a people of truth who, who prize and pursue truth always. And so if we are to speak truth, more often than not, we are going to have to verify that what we are saying is the actual truth. But let's, let's get a little bit more specific with this. When you are told, or maybe you even, you even witness, a, a brother or sister in sin... Before you speak against them, I think that you must verify with your, what your own eyes even have told you. That I see what I just think I saw. I think you can, you can approach the brother or sister and ask, did, did you do what, what I think you just did? did, did is that what I saw happen? You could, you could talk to someone who, who also witnessed it. Did, did you just see what I saw? Because you see, once we accuse, once the words leave our mouths, and once the accusation is made, you can't take it back. Words, once out there, are out there. And Jesus even spoke of this, quoting this verse in Deuteronomy. He quotes it in Matthew 18. And Jesus in Matthew 18 is speaking to his disciples and specifically speaking about church discipline. And what to do when a brother or sister is in sin and how we are to confront and how we are to love and hopefully bring them back through repentance. And Jesus says very clearly, only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. It is not enough for one person to say so and so did this. So and so committed this sin. I saw it. We must verify what we say before we actually say it. Number two, once this truth is verified, speak it. It is easy for us to verify something as true and then to withhold our tongue and to not say anything at all. But don't shy away from speaking the truth because it's uncomfortable or difficult. We need truth, and we, we need to be speaking it to everyone around us. We must speak truth, and more than anything else, we must speak the gospel, because it is the greatest truth that we could ever possibly speak. So when we do this, when we verify that what we're saying is true, and we, we speak what is truth, we can, we can be sure that we are speaking truth, and in speaking truth, we are speaking life. By God's grace, we must speak truth because God is the God of truth. Number two, we must speak love. Speak truth and we must speak love. As all good laws do, uh, verses 16 through 19 here in Deuteronomy present us a loophole to the original law given in verse 15. Verse 15 says that two witnesses are required at a minimum. But what if a crime is committed? And there was only one person who saw it. There was only one other person around. What then are we to do? 
do we pretend and say the crime never happened because only one person saw it? Or how do we protect individuals from lies and false accusations? And here in these verses, we're given a a process of, of what to do if there's one witness accusing one person of a crime and no one else saw anything. Very, very briefly, it says this, that both the witness and the accused are to come and they are to come to Jerusalem and to stand before the Lord, to stand in the temple, in the Lord's presence. And there before the Lord and before the judges and the priests who are serving at that time, they are to share their testimony, to share what the events that, that they remember happening. And through this, the judges would perform an investigation. They would do their, their due diligence and, and find out what is being said and what actually happened. And then if the accusation is true, then the criminal is punished and justice is done. But if the accusation is false, then the accuser would be punished in the same manner that would have been done if the accusation had been true. And justice is still done. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine what this would look like today? If I accused someone of stealing from me and demanded and and the justice system demanded that they pay me twice as much money as it had been stolen. If if it is found out that I lied, then I must pay them twice as much as what I had accused them of stealing. And we see examples of this not throughout scripture. Really, there's the one that came to my mind this week was in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 6, Daniel is accused of of praying and worshiping a false god instead of worshiping the king. And the the wicked men who falsely accused Daniel of these things, it ends up leading that Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. But God in his grace and mercy and kindness to Daniel closes the mouth of the lions. And Daniel survives the night without a scratch on him. And when Daniel is pulled out of the lion's den the very next morning, the king realizes that Daniel's accusers had lied. And so what happens to his accusers? The king says, well, we've got this lion's den here. And they're thrown in and immediately devoured. I wonder how many false and frivolous cases would never make it to court today if this were the norm. How many false and manipulative eyewitnesses would hold their tongue and and this would keep them from speaking falsely. But again, since it's not the norm today, again, we must ask, why does this matter? Why does this law about uh, punishing the false accuser, why does it matter? And I think, again, it shows the importance of our words. And not only that, it shows the care that we must take when we speak to others and about others. Notice, notice how this false witness is described in verse 16. My my translation, the ESV, calls him a malicious witness. Malicious. As in someone seeking to do harm to someone else by wicked and evil means. So how then are we like this malicious witness? Do we ever speak maliciously? And I, I think, of course we do. I think two of the primary ways that this happens are through both gossip and slander. Gossip and slander are so often brought together and seen as the same thing, but they are very different. You see, slander is, is speaking 
something that is false to harm someone else. What you're saying is not true, but it does do harm to someone else. Gossip, on the other hand, is speaking something that is true, but to the harm of someone else. Now, slander would violate this first lesson. We've, we've covered it. If, you're, if we desire to speak truth, then slander is out the window. We cannot slander. Because slander is not speaking the truth. But gossip, gossip is a question of love. It's easy for us to think, and and I've I've said this myself, it's easy for us to think that as long as what we are saying is the truth, then it's okay for us to say it. I'm just telling it like it is. Tell me that what I'm saying is wrong, and I'll stop saying it. We can be all about speaking truth and never speak a word of life to anyone. Because when the truth is unaccompanied by love, that truth is crushing. I'll be honest, one of the hardest aspects of, in my opinion, one of the hardest aspects of of fatherhood is is correcting my children. How how harsh do you do it? How how much grace do you give? Where's the line between punishment and and love? And, and, And all of these questions just... They, they vary in every single issue. And one of the things that, that has been the, the most convicting and the most challenging for me as a, a dad is, is finding the way to correct my children without crushing them. You see, if I, if I was the father who, who was strict and, and had a, a legalistic household, where if you break this law, if you break this rule, then you must do the crime, no questions asked. Then things would be very structured, at least in a theory. Children would stay in line and they would always toe the line. And if they ever crossed the line, then punishment would be swift and just and fair and no one could say boo about it. But this is not the father we have in heaven, is it? We have a father who shows grace. When we cross the line, who forgives and withholds wrath, even though he made discipline. We have a father in heaven who corrects us with truth, but does it with love. And so, too, we as as parents and as people must strive to speak truth. Yes, but to speak truth in love. It's so important that in in 1 Corinthians 13, the the famous love chapter of Paul's writing, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it does not boast. I'm sure are familiar with the passage. Right before these descriptions of love, Paul gets into this little discussion of why love matters so much. And he says in this, in, in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Now, imagine speaking the tongue of angels. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. 
He says, if I can fathom all mysteries and if I can understand the, the depths and the, the infinite knowledge of God and can, can wrap my head around even the most complex and complicated theologies and understandings and doctrines about who God is, but I have not love, then I'm nothing. I mean, here is Paul, the apostle, the, the mighty apostle who we, we imagine being so, so strong and devout and, and intelligent and wise. And he says, look, all of these things that I know about God mean absolutely nothing if I don't love people with it. And I think it must be for us and for our speech. We must speak the truth, yes. But are we speaking both truth and love in the same breath? How can we know that this is what we're doing? How can you know that what you're speaking is love? I think we, we need to ask a, a couple of questions. Would you feel loved if someone else said the same thing to you or about you? Would you feel loved if someone said the same thing about you but to someone else? The same tone, the same mannerism, the same, the, the same uh, inflection in their voice. Would you, would you feel loved if, if what you are speaking was spoken to you? And really, I think the more important question is that these witnesses were called to come and stand in the presence of the Lord. Would you be confident enough to stand in the presence of God and say, I am loving this person and how I'm speaking? I think we need to remember that everything we do, we do in the presence of the Lord. That we, our bodies are his temple. That his spirit dwells within us. And so in a very real sense, every step of our lives is a step taken in his presence. And so speak as if you are standing in the Lord's presence. Because you are. To speak life, you must speak truth. You must do it by speaking love. Thirdly, we, first we speak truth, we speak love. Thirdly, we speak mercy. The passage ends with a, a rather well-known law. Uh, it's the, called the law of Talion, from which we get our word retaliate. Verse 21, you see it there at the end. It says, it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And this, again, is referring to how a false witness is to be treated. Whatever they intended to be done by their accusation must now be done to them. If they intended for this person to be killed, they must then be killed. If they intended for this person to lose an eye, they must then lose an eye. If they intended for their person to lose a hand, they must lose a hand. And on and on it goes. And this, I, I still believe this is a requirement for every legal system. Not just biblical legal system, but for our legal system. Because this, is, this idea of fair treatment is that justice must be done. And if you take this law of the Talion to the fullest extent, then you end up with the idea of capital punishment. That if you take someone's life, your life should be taken. If you intentionally murdered someone, if you sought out someone with, with evil intent and, and, and 
planned and premeditated their murder, then your life has been forfeit. In Romans 13, Paul is, is encouraging the church in Rome to submit to the government. To a government that is very much oppressive to the church and very much uh, aggressive towards Christians. Paul says you must submit to the government because they have been appointed by God over you. And in the same section of, of submission to the government, Paul says that the government has been given the sword by God himself. And the sword is given to the government that they may pursue the evildoer. And that with this sword, they may punish those who break the law. Paul says you don't want to be afraid. If, if, if you desire not to fear the government, then don't break the law. So the government has been given the sword by God to punish those who break the law. Capital punishment, I believe, works as Deuteronomy 19 says it should. To purge evil from the midst of the people. And in doing this, the rest of the people may hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil. And all that being said, it's okay to disagree with me on this. I have, have and still do at times waver back and forth on whether or not capital punishment should be the norm of the day. Because you see, our justice system and no justice system is perfect. There, are, there have been guilty, guilty verdicts that have resulted in the death of innocent people. But regardless, I, I believe that punishment for any crime, whether it's murder or whether it's theft or whether it's lying, punishment for, for any crime must be swift and it must be fair. And that, I believe, is the point of this law of Talion. Not just this life-for-life life issue, but it's this idea of fairness. You don't punish a murderer as if he were only a thief. And you don't punish a thief as if he were a murderer. That is not just. It is not fair. And so I believe, again, that this law, these last few verses of Deuteronomy 19, have to and must apply to the justice system. But what about outside of the justice system? How are we to treat those that have sinned against us? Maybe we should adopt the law of Talion and say, look, if you hurt my reputation, then I get a free swing at your reputation. If you hurt my family, I get to hurt yours. If you speak harshly against me, I get to speak harshly against you. Would this work? No, I think eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Even as, as Gandhi said, eye for eye leaves the whole world blind. Thankfully enough, Jesus himself speaks to this verse very specifically and clearly in Matthew 5. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go with him one mile, go with him two. I, I think that when we understand the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, I think, and we, we come across this law of Talion in Deuteronomy, I think it must be applied and intended for the courts. 
but for the courts alone. It was never meant for individuals. Christian, you do not work or live under the law of retaliation. You live, Christian, under grace and under mercy. Because you have been given grace and mercy. And so when we speak, when we use our words, when we wield our tongue, we must speak mercy. Especially to those that have wronged us or spoken evilly against us. Consider for a moment your your own sins. Just looking deep into your past, deep into your heart. Consider your own sins, both in the quantity and the quality. Are they not more numerous than you can count? Are they not more heinous and severe than you would like to admit to the person sitting next to you? Now, you see, as disciples and as followers of Christ, you know that that these sins, each and every one of them, from the smallest white lie to the greatest sin you've ever committed, they do not count against you anymore. Not in Christ. They have been paid and accounted for in Christ's death. His blood now covers all of these sins and covers you in mercy. Where you do not receive what you deserve to receive for them. Does your speech reflect this? Does your speech, is it seasoned with grace? Is it seasoned with mercy? Or is it one of bitterness? Is it one of contempt? Is it flavored with retaliation? Christian, if you've been given such a great mercy in Christ that each and every one, all of your, all of your sins have been forgiven and wiped clean, how, how can you now withhold that same mercy from someone else? If we speak harshly and we speak without mercy, how are we any different from the world outside? I mean, out there, that that is a world of of cancel culture and a world of of, there is a world that has no room for grace. You mess up once you're done. But we are a people of grace. We are a people of mercy. Let our speech then reflect that truth. When we speak mercy, we speak life. Because mercy was spoken to us, and in that we received life. The tongue is a a dangerous weapon, to be sure. Words can destroy lives with a simple flick of the tongue. I don't think it's coincidence that it was with words that the serpent used his forked tongue and eventually led all of mankind and all of creation into sin. And ever since that day, the tongues of man have mirrored the forked tongue of that serpent. We speak death and we speak destruction. We speak lies and we speak accusation. But by God's grace given to us in Christ, we have been redeemed. And this redemption, this being made new, 
accounts and covers even our tongues. Because now instead of death, you and I can in fact speak life. And to speak life, we must speak truth. We must speak truth such as that we are a sinful people. Deserving of wrath and wrath alone. We must speak love. That God in his abundant love for us has given his son to die in our place. And we must speak mercy. That in Christ all of our sins are forgiven. Forever. Church, when we speak these things, we speak life. And we must speak life. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. I'm thankful for your word. Help us to use our words well. To use our words to speak life. Help us to live in obedience to Deuteronomy 19. To value the lives of others and the people around us and to speak kindly of them. Help us to speak truth. Help us to speak love. Help us to speak mercy. By your grace and kindness, may you use our words to speak life as we proclaim your gospel to the world around us. Forgive us, Father, for the times that we have used our tongues for evil, for death. Heal the wounds that our tongues have caused. Heal the wounds in us that have been caused by the tongues of others. By your grace, may we live redeemed lives. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we have studied and heard the word of God proclaimed to us, we now are given an opportunity to respond as we come to the Lord's table together. Uh, Ron is at the back. If you need the elements, just raise your hand. He'll bring them to you. But as we as we gather together this morning and as we come to the table, I, I want, as I always do, to remind you of a few important aspects of this table. First, this table is for believers. It's it's not a, a Bear Creek members only thing. If you are a believer in Christ, have repented of sin and have sought grace and forgiveness in Christ's death and resurrection, then this table is open to you because Christ's death covers you and brings you to it. If you're not a member that, but, but a believer, then we're glad you're here and we're, we would love to have you take the table with us. We'd also love to, I would also love to talk with you about what it looks like to join our church and be a member here. But if, if you are not a believer in Christ, and I don't want to, to count anybody out because you may in fact be a member at Bear Creek and not a believer in Christ. If you're not a believer in Christ, meaning you have not repented of sin, you have not come to Christ for salvation, you have not cried to him for grace and forgiveness, then let me encourage you not to take this today, but take Christ instead. This is a picture. He's the real deal. Why would you want a picture when you can have something real? But brothers and sisters, as, as you and I come to the table this morning, 
let me offer you a, a, a moment to confess. A moment to, to confess sins of speech. Where your tongues have been used to speak death and pain into the lives of others. Confess these sins to the Lord before you come to the table. Do, do so now. Father, forgive our gossip, forgive our slander, forgive our lies. Put our forked tongues back together. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As we come to the table, we come first to the bread. And these sins that we have confessed... This bread reminds us that they are, in fact, forgiven. They do not hang over you. They do not weigh you down. They, there is no punishment reserved for them. Because in the bread, we are reminded that the punishment has been paid fully and completely. That as Christ died on the cross, his last words were, it is done. The wrath of God has been satisfied. Because the body of Christ has been broken for you. The Bible speaks of a day that is coming, and it's coming soon. When every tongue will speak the same, the same phrase, Jesus Christ is Lord. There will not be a single tongue able to be quiet on that day. That every knee will bow and every tongue will proclaim and confess and shout out this wonderful truth that Jesus Christ is the King today, tomorrow, and forevermore. What a glorious day that will be when tongues will no longer be used to hurt, but they will be used for worship and worship alone. To the King. Having been redeemed by Christ, let us use our tongues one more time before we leave here and sing praise to the Lord. Our final hymn this morning is hymn 71, Praise to the Lord the Almighty. Please stand and sing.
that has life and breath, come now with praises before him. It's good. Our benediction this morning, and as it is every Sunday, is the command of Christ as we go out here to go and make disciples. And in this commission, there is a command to teach, to speak. And so in this, we use our tongues to teach them all that Christ has commanded. So I invite you as we go from here, not only to say the Great Commission, but leave here and go do the Great Commission. Say it aloud with me this morning. And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go in grace.